Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Again, that's Luke chapter 10. We are currently commemorating the five-year anniversary of the church by going back and revisiting a selection of uh, messages uh, from a series I gave back at the very beginning of the church plant, and the theme during this series uh, has been Love Others. Uh, The name of this series five years ago is simply The Church. Uh, Because the goal of the series then was to set a course for the direction of the church by discussing what the scripture says about the basic design and function of the church. Uh, All in all, uh, between the sermons and the group discussions, that that series ended up taking something like 20 weeks in total. Uh, It covered everything from the purpose and the role of the church to the government, even the ordinances of the church. Its scope was very broad because we were trying to cover the basics of what it means to, quote, you know, do church in all its various facets. That's not the goal of this series. Uh, The goal of this series is is to simply examine the portion of those concepts that we might still need to work on the most after five years. And as best as I can tell, I think that may be the portion of this series that had to do with the church's responsibility to love others. Once again, the purpose of the church is worship, but what does it mean to worship? Jesus gives the answer in Matthew 22, 34-40, when a lawyer asks him to state the great commandment of the law, and he answers by saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says all of God's commands are based on these two points, meaning that they can all be traced back to one of these two principles. So if you want to know what worship looks like, here's your answer. Love God, love people. What this means is that if the church is going to fulfill its role in the world, then it cannot do so simply by gathering together to learn doctrine and sing songs and pray. It must also love people. Again, we've talked about this over the past several weeks. Love for people is an expression of love for God by virtue of the fact that man is made in the image of God. The two concepts are inextricably linked, meaning you simply cannot worship without performing both halves. After all, to love people apart from a love for God is really nothing more than simple idolatry. But on the other hand, to love God apart from any affection or concern for the people made in His image, that's rank hypocrisy. So to err on either side is to offer up a false expression of worship. It is to commit either idolatry or hypocrisy. This means that if the church is to perform its role in the world, then it must pursue both aspects of God's command. It must both love God and people. My analysis is that five years in, if we're struggling with either of these two halves, I'd venture to say it's probably not the first half, love God. It's the second, love people. And so rather than review the entire original series, we're going back and looking at just that portion of the series that zero in on this concept. And the question we're asking ourselves is, why is love for people an expression of our love for God? And we're asking this question as we explore, in particular, how these various types of relationships that we participate in express our love for God differently. We know that love for people expresses our love for God, but what we discover in the Scripture is that how this works changes based on the type of relationship that we have with someone. So not all relationships express our love for God the same way. What we're doing is exploring how these different relationships express our love for God And we're doing this so that we might be motivated to excel in our love for others in the next 5 or 10 or 20 years of the church. Two weeks ago, I explained how love for family serves as an expression of love for God. And then last week, I explained how love for the church serves as an expression of love for God. This week, we're going to discuss the third and final type of these relationships in the series, and that's love for the world. If Cornerstone is going to successfully fulfill its purpose in worshiping God, then we will be intentional about not only loving our families and not only loving the church, but we will love the unbelieving world as well. Now, up to this point in this discussion, I've built our understanding of 
the role our love for our neighbor plays in the life of the church off of a reference to uh, what Jesus says in Matthew 22. Again, in Matthew 22, Jesus is asked to provide the greatest commandment of the law, and Jesus replies by actually not just supplying the greatest command, but by summarizing all the law and the prophets, the, the, whole, the, the whole entire Old Testament, on two points. He says, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Again, these two points have served as the basis of the explanation for how the church is to pursue worship. The church pursues worship by loving God and loving others. However, Matthew 22 actually isn't the only time in Jesus' ministry that he discussed this concept. Another instance occurs in Luke 10, 25-28. In Matthew 22, Jesus covers this concept in the temple just a few days before his death. At that point in his ministry, the religious leaders see that Jesus is becoming immensely popular, so popular that even though they want him dead, they can't put him to death. Unfortunately for them, he's so popular that they determine they can't kill him without a riot breaking out. So they determine to try to discredit him instead through a series of questions contrived to trip him up. And, and the question about the great commandment of the law comes at the conclusion of these questions. Luke tells us that this wasn't the only time Jesus answered this question during his ministry. Look at Luke 10, 25-28. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. In this passage, a lawyer comes up to Jesus, and he asks him a question. But if you notice, in this this instance, Jesus doesn't answer the question. The lawyer does. And Jesus affirms the answer. And I think if we pay attention to what happens in this exchange, we can see why. Uh, Verse 25, for instance, says that the man came to test Jesus. The word for test is peirazzo, and it's the same term that's used for tempt in the New Testament. In other words, this man is trying to bait Jesus. But he's not trying to bait Jesus in the same way that the lawyer does over in Matthew 22. In fact, there's a couple of distinct differences. First off, the question in Matthew 22 is, Teacher, what is the great commandment of the law? That's not the question that this guy asks in Luke 10. The question that this lawyer wants to know is, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Did you catch that? That's two very different questions. What's the summary of the law versus what do I need to do to have eternal life? The second difference appears to be the attitude of these two men in asking these questions. Matthew 22 says that the lawyer there came to test Jesus as well. But what's different is that in that instance, according to Mark, after Jesus answers the lawyer, he affirms his answer and praises the lawyer, telling him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. In other words, it would appear that the lawyer in Matthew 22 is coming at Jesus with a, with a genuine desire to know whether or not Jesus is the Christ. He asks this question after Jesus has successfully answered every question thrown at him. And Mark even says that he asked the question because Jesus answered those questions so well. So that lawyer tests Jesus, but it would appear that the test is driven by a sincere desire to discover if Jesus really is who he claims to be. Not so this lawyer. This this man is different. It It would seem that his intent is to prove Jesus false. He's trying to expose Jesus. And I think this is demonstrated by the fact that when Jesus kicks the question back to him, the lawyer is only too eager to speak his mind on the issue. You see, this man already knew what he thought about how a person inherited eternal life when he asked Jesus this question. He already has an answer. And now he wants to know what Jesus thinks. So this isn't a question asked out of curiosity, and he isn't asking it, expecting Jesus to say, well, I don't know. It would seem, rather, that he's trying to pick a fight. I think this is probably why Jesus chooses to kick the question back to the lawyer in this instance instead of answering it directly. 
He perceives why this man is asking the question. He understands that this lawyer already has a position on the issue. And so rather than answer the question, he flips the question back onto the man. Essentially, he says, I can see something's bothering you here, so I'll tell you what, why don't you go first? You tell me, what do you think? How does a man inherit eternal life? You see, I think the lawyer is expecting Jesus to disagree with him. After all, by this point in his ministry, Jesus has the reputation of a man who didn't respect the law in the eyes of many. It was said that Jesus refused to keep the Sabbath. It was said that he ate and drank with tax collectors and prostitutes. In fact, in the verses just preceding these in Luke 10, Jesus actually praises God because filthy sinners like these, these tax collectors and prostitutes, are going to get into heaven before the Pharisees and the scribes who are zealously obeying God in everything. And so the reason why Jesus comes off this way, that he doesn't have a respect for the law, is because he's teaching that salvation is not by one's righteousness, since none are righteous. Instead, salvation is by grace through faith. Now again, the man in this passage is a lawyer. The word for lawyer here isn't the same as how you and I think of a lawyer. The term refers to someone who's an expert in the Mosaic Law, someone who knows their Bibles backwards and forwards, meaning this is a guy who takes the law of Moses very seriously. And what he hears when Jesus says things or implies things, like eternal life is received by grace through faith, not according to one's righteousness, what this man hears is righteousness doesn't matter. You can just do whatever you want and you'll get to heaven because it's all grace. And that thought is going to set this man off. He's going to say to himself, who does this Jesus think he is? He's acting like it doesn't matter whether or not a person obeys God. He's acting like you can just sin all you want and go to heaven and that's not true. We have to obey God. How dare he tell Israel that they don't need to obey the law? So I think this lawyer asked this question expecting Jesus to disagree with him. He wants Jesus to say it's, it's by grace. You just believe. He wants Jesus to say that so he can go to town on him about the importance of the law. He wants to quote Deuteronomy 4.2 to Jesus, which says, You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. So when Jesus asks him what he thinks about how a person receives eternal life, this man's ready to go. He's ready to fight. He's only too eager to answer. He says, you want to know what I think? I'll tell you what I think. And then he answers the question himself. You can only imagine the surprise this this man would have felt when Jesus actually agreed with if you look here, he affirms the, man, the man's position. The man says, you have to love God and love your neighbor. You have to fulfill the law. That's how you get to heaven. And Jesus answers by saying, verse 28, you've answered correctly. Now at this point, you can imagine that, that lawyer is probably more than a little disarmed, right? He came expecting that Jesus would deny the law, but to his surprise, Jesus actually agrees with him. Jesus isn't denying the law. He tells the lawyer, you nailed it. You nailed it. You're absolutely 100% right. Do that and you'll live. Just like he said in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus affirms he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill. The problem in Jesus' answer is, is the second half of verse 28. When he reveals the significance of what that man just affirmed. Again, he says, second half, verse 28, he says, Do this, and you will live. Jesus is probably intending to quote Leviticus 18.5 here, which says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So Jesus says, You're absolutely right, lawyer. Just love God with all your heart. All your soul, all your strength, love your neighbor as yourself, and you won't go to hell. You'll live. Now the man has a dilemma before him, doesn't he? 
The problem is that Leviticus 18.5 implies that you have to keep all the law in order to live. You don't just get to perform all the statutes some of the time, or even some of the statutes all of the time. You have to perform all the statutes all of the time. And if you don't, then you will not live. You do not have eternal life. And if this man is perfectly honest, he realizes he doesn't do this. Nobody does this, all right? Every, every single one of us sins. If the only way to eternal life is to perfectly obey the law, then we're all condemned. This man, too, is condemned. So this lawyer just trapped himself. He came to rebuke this so-called teacher who was proclaiming salvation to the worst of sinners, but instead this teacher actually took him to school and got him to condemn himself. <laughs> Whoops, <laughs> all right? Like, that wasn't how this was supposed to turn out. Guys, can I just tell you, can I just, can I just give you a little piece of advice here kind of while we're here? If you ever somehow have the opportunity to have a conversation with Jesus... I would advise you, keep your mouth shut. Okay? Just don't say anything. If he asks you a question, there's really only one right answer, and that's to simply say, you know what? That's a great question, Jesus, and I'm just going to assume that I don't know the answer to this, and so would you please tell me the answer, right? That's the, that's the only way out there. Just be quiet. Let him do the talking. I, I would say don't even ask a question, because he knows the questions that you should be asking, right, uh, better than you do. That's what comes out of this situation with this lawyer. Watch how the rest of this plays out, starting in verse 29. Either the lawyer is humbled, or he's backpedaling. But either way, it would seem he perceives what Jesus did. And now, he's seeking to justify himself. Look at this, verse 29. It says, And he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? He came to test Jesus, to put Jesus under the microscope, but now he's the one being examined. This isn't the argument he came for, right? Jesus is supposed to be the one justifying himself, but just like that, the tables have turned, and now it's the lawyer who's under examination. The lawyer believes eternal life is found in the law, and Jesus affirmed that law on a certain level. He says, if you keep the law, you will live. But who who has kept the law? Right? No one has. And so the lawyer tries to justify himself, meaning he tries to find a way to demonstrate that he's not guilty according to the standard that he just affirmed. And he does this by asking Jesus to define the term neighbor. He says, uh, so, okay, what now? <laughs> okay, Jesus, now who exactly is my neighbor then? You see that? He understands that he's gotten himself in too deep. If the standard is love for one's neighbor, then obviously he's got some shortcomings because no one does this perfectly. So he's looking for some wiggle room here. He wants his neighbor to be defined narrowly in order to demonstrate that he has done this. Again, he asked Jesus to define the term. And just so you know, I think this is a question asked out of genuine curiosity. I don't think this lawyer has the answer here. And I say that because this time when the lawyer asks the question, Jesus doesn't turn it right back around on him. And I think this will be further proven in his response to Jesus' answer in just a moment uh, because he's not going to argue with Jesus. I don't think the lawyer knows the answer to this question. It would seem that he's letting Jesus teach him. He's realizing that Jesus just created a problem he doesn't have an answer to. So he's asking for real. He understands the standard he just affirmed. It's too high. So he's hoping that maybe, just just maybe, Jesus will tell him the standard is low enough that he can meet it. Think about the irony in this, right? Think about this for a minute. Here's a man who came to tell Jesus that he needs to uphold the righteous standard of the law. And now that he's seeing his own sin, he's hoping that Jesus might tell him the bar is low enough that he's able to meet it. Isn't that interesting how that works? It seems there are a lot of people that are all about upholding God's commands so long as it's being applied to other people. They're very passionate about expressing the need for other people to do what God says. But then when that same standard is applied to them and the microscope zeroes in on them, suddenly they lose their nerve and they want to talk about the grace of God. Isn't that weird? 
that's the opportunity that, opportunity that Jesus sees here. And so he seizes the moment, not simply to teach the lawyer the answer to his question, but to shepherd this lawyer's heart to the point of repentance. And he proceeds to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, the story of the Good Samaritan is famous enough culturally that I, I trust you all know it. A Jewish man falls into a group of robbers on the way to Jericho, and he's left for dead. Both a priest and a Levite, both men who would be considered righteous by this lawyer's standards because they claimed to uphold the law, both the priest and the Levite passed by this man. They refused to help him. And then a Samaritan comes along, a man from a people that actually only recognized the first five books of the Bible, a man from a people who are renowned at this point in history for their unrighteousness, a man from a race that was hated by the Jews and who hated the Jews themselves, and he stops and he helps this man who's supposed to be his enemy. He sets him up in an inn, pays for everything that's required for the man to become healthy again, and shows compassion. Jesus gets to the end of the story, and again he asks the lawyer to answer a question. He says, verse 36, Which of these three, do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Now the lawyer is starting to understand. He answers, verse 37, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus just proved his point. The term neighbor in the Hebrew is also translated friend. The Pharisaical teaching of the law of that time taught that neighbor referred only to your friends, and in particular to your fellow Israelites, according to Leviticus 19, 17-18. You are, you are only responsible to love other Israelites. You could hate everyone else and you are fine. What Jesus teaches in this parable is that being a neighbor is not defined along bloodlines. It was a friend of this man. It wasn't his countrymen, right? Rather, it was the unclean Samaritan. Friendship, neighborliness, isn't defined by relationship as much as it is by actions. And note here, the Samaritan didn't help the Jewish man because the Jewish man was the Samaritan's neighbor. It was because the Samaritan was a neighbor to him. When the lawyer asks, who is my neighbor, Jesus actually flips the question a little bit. Friendship, neighborliness, Jesus explains, isn't defined by how the people the lawyer interacts with respond to him. It's defined by how he responds to them. He points out that anyone that this lawyer shows compassion to, anyone that he shows mercy to, anyone that he acts like a friend to, becomes his friend, his neighbor, by the way he treats them. So the fulfillment of this command isn't discovered by finding out who your neighbors are and then loving only them. In fact, you can't narrow this command down to a certain group of people because anyone can become a neighbor. Anyone you choose to draw near to by treating them like a friend becomes your neighbor. So the way you fulfill this command isn't by finding out who your neighbor is. It's by being a neighbor yourself. When you initiate compassion, when you start it, Anyone can be your neighbor. So when Jesus comes loving the wicked, when He comes proclaiming salvation to the worst of sinners, when, when He actually comes proclaiming the forgiveness of sins, He isn't nullifying the law. Instead, He's fulfilling it. He's showing mercy. He's acting as a neighbor to those who needed mercy. It's, it's precisely this kind of compassion that the lawyer does not express. And likely, even with his fellow countrymen, whenever he tries to condemn them through the law. So every time he brings up the law before others and tells them unsympathetically, do this and you will live, every time he condemns them by that standard, he's actually condemning himself through his refusal to demonstrate mercy. That's what this story does. It actually, it actually condemns the lawyer. Now, now keep in mind, the question still at hand is how a person inherits eternal life. Jesus affirms that one must love their neighbor as themselves in order to receive eternal life. This man wants to know what that means, to love one's neighbor. And Jesus demonstrates that it's a standard beyond what this man does, beyond what anyone does. He says that eternal life is received by showing compassion towards your enemy all the time. So how does that work? I mean, how does love for your neighbor connect with eternal life? Does it earn 
eternal life? Is that what Jesus is saying? No, that's not what he's saying. What's been revealed in this parable is that this man is as much in need of mercy as the people he would condemn through the law. What Jesus is showing this man is that perhaps he needs to be open to the idea that salvation happens another way, that it comes not through rigid obedience to the law, but through the mercy of God. And the way this lawyer would demonstrate that he understood his need for mercy was by being willing to extend the same kind of mercy that he himself needed towards others. This is a sign of forgiveness. Our understanding of our need for forgiveness softens us to be willing to forgive others. If you're harsh with other people and you're eager to condemn them, it's probably because you don't realize how worthy of condemnation you are. If you understood how much you need mercy, then you would be merciful to others. In other words, it's through understanding his own need for mercy that the lawyer will be able to fulfill the command to love his neighbor because it's as he understands his own need for mercy they have compassion on others in need of mercy and show them love. This is why Jesus concludes this encounter by saying to the lawyer, you go and do likewise. The point isn't that this man would earn his salvation by loving other people. The point is that if this man understood his own need for mercy... (laughs) then he would be merciful. It was a sign that he was it would be a sign that he was seeking the forgiveness that he needed just as much as them. The connection between this statement and eternal life isn't that loving your neighbor means you've earned salvation. Rather Jesus is saying that this man must realize that if he's going to receive eternal life, then it's through the mercy of God, not the law of God. And if he understands this, then he will demonstrate the same mercy towards his enemies. Loving your neighbor isn't something you do to earn salvation. It's something that occurs as a necessary, listen, as a necessary result of salvation. Again, so much so, and we've talked about this in the past few weeks, it's such a necessary result of salvation that we can see throughout the New Testament that you can say, if a person does not love their neighbor, they are not saved. So let's bring this back around for a moment to our discussion for the subject at hand, love for the world. Based on Matthew 22, why would the church ever love the world? If we're basing our love for other people on the idea that people are made in the image of God, then why would we ever love the world? Jesus says, love your neighbor like yourself, but the world certainly wouldn't qualify as a neighbor, right? I mean, the world rejects God. The world rebels against God. James 4.4 even says that friendship with the world is enmity with God, and that whoever makes himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I mean, we've said that love for others is based off the fact that people reflect the image of God, but, but the world has rejected that image, right? Unbelievers may still retain a portion of it, but, but they've largely rejected that image. Why not just love the church then? Right? Why not just love those people who are being increasingly transformed into the image of God. I think we see the answer here in Luke 10. When Jesus clarifies this command, love your neighbor, with the story of the Good Samaritan. And he points out that you don't have to be a friend of the world to fulfill this command. You don't have to be buddies, right? James 4.4 stands. You shouldn't be a friend of the world in the sense that you have an affection or an attraction for the things of the world, but love your neighbor as yourself also doesn't simply mean loving those who you have an affection for. It also means loving your enemies. It means acting as a neighbor to them, even though there's a lot of reason actually to be separated from them. Yes, the second principle of the law, love your neighbor, is like the first, similar to the first, because people are made in the image of God. And this means that we should grow in our affection for people as we're transformed to love God because the image of God is resident in them. But that is not the only instruction embedded in that command. The command also means that we are to love all people, regardless of whether or not there is anything in them that is lovable. We are even to love in spite of their unloveliness. 
So on one hand, we demonstrate love for God and our love for our neighbors because people are made in the image of God. And again, this does include unbelievers at a certain level, fallen. Though we are, all men do possess at least a remnant of God's image, even if it's faint. It it isn't lost just yet. But on the other hand, what the parable of the Good Samaritan teaches us is that we also demonstrate love for God when we love people even when they do not reflect the image of God. How does that work? Why why should we love those types of people? How is that an expression of love for God? Let's look at this idea together just briefly. How does love for the world, love for from the perspective of the gospel, right? Those who are enemies of God. How does love for them demonstrate love for God? That's what I want to look at with you very briefly. Here are three reasons why love for the world demonstrates love for God. The first reason is this. Number one, because when you love the world, you display the character of God. When you love the world, you display the character of God. You know, God certainly acts out of a desire to glorify Himself. By virtue of His very nature, He alone is worthy. Note here, worthy. Only He is worthy to receive all love, honor, and praise. He is infinitely superior, infinitely greater than any other created thing. And yet, although He alone is worthy of love, His character is such that He displays love to those that are not worthy to receive it. It's part of what makes Him actually worthy to receive worship. It's part of what makes Him glorious. His gracious love to His enemies is glorious. And part of the way that He displays the glory of His grace is by actually extending love not only to those who worship Him, but even to His enemies. This is why we have any hope of salvation. While it's true that God desires to redeem mankind as a race, right, in order to redeem His own image, Listen, Jesus was able to do that on His own by becoming the perfect man and by judging the earth on behalf of the Father. So there's there's really no reason, after God has redeemed His image in mankind through the person of Jesus Christ, there's really no reason why God needs to save any of us individually. Actually, if anything, He has a lot of reasons to condemn us all to an eternity in hell. Each of us are individually worthy of destruction. And yet Romans 5, 6-11 says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This this is how God responds to His enemies. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells the church that we are, as His church, to display the character of God then in the same way. Please turn to Matthew 5.43. Matthew 5.43. In this sermon, Jesus describes standard that God holds for those who would enter into His kingdom. And it's within this context that Jesus says, Matthew 5, 43-48, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus says that when we love our enemies, we act as sons to our Father. We act like God when we do that. We act like God who who gives rain Right to both the wicked and the righteous so they can have food and eat. God loves even His enemies by providing for Him, and He calls His children to resemble Him, to act like Him by doing the same. Again, we were created to, to glorify God by reflecting His image. This requires 
right, ruling over the earth in a way that's consistent with his character. And this kind of gracious love is consistent with his character. We show our love for God by glorifying him, by demonstrating his greatness. And one of the ways that we do this is by loving even our enemies. When we love our enemies, we reflect the character of God. And when we reflect the character of God, we love God by magnifying his glory through our actions. This is one reason why we should love the world in spite of the fact that the world is not very lovable. Because when we love the world in this way, we display the character of God. While God has a special love for His church, His children, He still possesses a general love even towards His enemies. While we should have a special love for the church in the same way, it doesn't negate the fact that we too should possess a general love for the world. Of course, if we have compassion on the world in this way, then then we'll evangelize. We're going to share the gospel with them, right? That's a necessary consequence of this kind of love. If we're genuinely concerned with their well-being, then we cannot help but share Christ with them because they're condemned to an eternity of torment without Him. Right? So, I mean, we can show compassion on the lost in a number of ways. This is the first way, though, that we'll show compassion for them by sharing the gospel of Christ because that's their greatest need. Right? Compassion compels us to share Christ with the lost because that is their greatest need. We simply can't avoid it if we truly love them. However, that being said, that being said, please note that this principle also means that we should care for the world regardless of whether or not they believe, right? This is the way that God demonstrates His love to the world. Again, love for the world doesn't start with them, it starts with God. We love the world, we show them compassion, not as a result of their response to our love, but as an expression of our worship to God. This means that while the gospel will, by necessity, saturate our interactions with the world at all times, we do not demonstrate love for the world simply in hopes that they will believe. We care for the world regardless of whether or not they believe. We don't love the world simply in hopes that they'll believe in Christ. No, we love the world because we love the world. Evangelism doesn't serve as the basis of my love for the world, but as an expression of my love for them. My worship to God serves as the basis of my love for the world. And of course, that love then will mean I will inevitably evangelize. This is the first reason why love for the world is connected to love for God. Because when you love the world, you reflect the character of God. Let's look together at the second reason why you should love the world if you love God. Reason number two... Because when you love the world, you care for the image of God. When you love the world, you care for the image of God. Once again, even fallen men possess a faded picture of the image of God. It may be corrupted, it may be distorted, but all men are indeed made in the image of God. And as I mentioned in previous weeks, this means that we can and even should have a genuine affection even for unbelievers. We should be delighted in those aspects of their character that reflect God because they still do glorify God to some degree. They certainly don't intend to glorify God. And so in this sense, you can't call it worship or obedience. They, they are still unable to be pleasing to God because they reject Him. But there are aspects of their being which, like it or not, intentional or unintentional, still reflect His glory. Just as all the creation declares the glory of God through the beauty of His design. And so while we cannot, while we cannot delight in those parts of a man that are, that are corrupted by sin, we can still rejoice over those aspects that do reflect God's glory. For example, I, I admire the, the, the courage and the leadership of men like Winston Churchill and Theodore Roosevelt. I can't say they demonstrated that courage and, and leadership in order to glorify God. But I know that biblical love means that when we seek to glorify God, then our love for others means that we will demonstrate courage as a, as a demonstration of our trust in God and out of a desire to protect others. It's a form of self-sacrifice. Courage is a, is a virtue that Christians should apply because it reflects the character of God. So I can admire that courage when I see it in others and hope to see it manifested in my own life, but for the glory of God rather than for the praise of men. I think we can have an affection for unbelievers in this sense, but that's not what I'm talking about with this point when I say that when you love the world, you care for the image of God. 
Rather, the point I want to make here is that all men are made in the image of God. And so as we seek to express love for fallen men and women, when we seek to show mercy towards them, even in their rebellion, when they are unlovable, when there is no reason to have any affection for them, when we still love them, we yet demonstrate love for God by showing care and compassion for those made in His image. Whether or not a person loves God, they reflect Him. And so when I demonstrate compassion to them, I can do so out of a love for the image of God in them, whether or not they love Him. To put it another way, our love for God should cause us to have a concern for the image of God. And if we have a concern for the image of God, then we'll demonstrate that concern by having compassion on all men. If I could put it this way, it it should bother us. It should bother us when we see the effects of sin come to bear on mankind. It should bother us when we see sickness and disease plaguing mankind. It should should bother us when we see men and women suffering for lack of food and shelter. We should be stirred up when we witness these things, not only out of compassion for them, because they have to endure such suffering, but also out of a concern for the glory of God. You know, every... Christmas, I, I'm, I'm moved when I, when I consider what that holiday symbolizes. When you, when you understand what's happening at Christmas, when, when Jesus, you know, the creator of the universe, God the Son, whose glory makes the angels fall down before Him in complete unworthiness, when you see Him enter into the world in a feeding trough, where livestock eat their meals, when, when you see Him enter into the world with no one to welcome Him, with His own people not recognizing Him or praising Him, when you see this King of the universe enter into the world with almost no possessions, as a simple carpenter's son, when you see those things, if you perceive the significance of them, you should actually kind of be offended. You should see all that and go, this isn't right. Here's the one who's worthy to receive all honor. He should be exalted, and instead he's treated with dishonor. That should bother you. That isn't treatment worthy of a king. This is similar to how you should look at sin in mankind. Man was made to rule on God's behalf. Mankind was created with the highest privilege, with the highest honor. It should bother you, therefore, when you see men and women made to reflect the glory of God through their rule over the creation, when you see them struggling under the weight of this fallen world. It should bother you when you see men and women, image bearers of the king, who are made to serve him and enjoy his blessing, instead enslaved to Satan. It isn't right. It isn't the way things are supposed to be. God's image is not supposed to do that. It should cause us to act with mercy towards those trapped in sin, not just out of compassion for them, but out of a desire to see the image of God in them delivered from that indignity. And by the way, this concept should be a major motivating factor in our evangelism. Again, all men are made in the image of God, but all men are born into this world doomed, condemned to an eternity in hell on account of their sin. That means if I love God, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to seek to save as many people as I can out of concern to see the image of God in men and women redeemed from their sin. If I love God, then I want to try to snatch that image out of the hands of sinners that would defame it in their rebellion against God. Pay attention to what I'm saying here. This is different than what I was saying just a moment ago. Before I was saying that you should evangelize a person out of a concern for the fact that they will suffer for eternity in hell. Here, it's not hell that I'm worried about so much as the cause of it, which is sin. I'm saying you should evangelize a person out of a concern for the fact that their sin defames the image of God. You evangelize them for the glory of God. If I love the image of God, then it should bother me when men and women are attempting to defile the glory of God through their sin. And so I'm going to proclaim the gospel to them in an effort to bring them to repentance. This is the second reason why love for the world is connected with love for God. Because when you love the world, you care for the image of God. Let's look now very briefly at the third and final reason why love for the world is connected with love for God. Reason number three, because when you love the world, you expand the kingdom of God. You expand the kingdom of God. 
We mentioned this idea last week in love for the church, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here again this morning. Last week I explained that when the church loves one another, they proclaim to the world what the character of the king is like and what his coming kingdom is going to look like. Our lives become a form of evangelism. Our lives become a form of evangelism. When we demonstrate the beauty of what life under the king is like. The world sees the radical love the church has for one another in contrast to the world's selfish love, and they begin to realize that God's call to repentance isn't a bad thing, right? It's a good thing. It's a great thing. It begins to show the world that the kingdom is going to be great because the king and his subjects are great. In this, we give them a demonstration of what they're repenting to. We tell them, we not only tell them that they must repent God or face judgment, but we also demonstrate for them through our lives why repentance is actually a desirable thing. Therefore, as the church loves one another, people come to repentance, and as people come to repentance, we expand the kingdom of God. We love God when we love one another, because as we love one another, we create new worshipers of God. The same thing occurs when we love the world. If you're still in Matthew 5, look again at verse 47. Jesus says, And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same. Jesus points out that this this radical love, this love for our enemies is, is different than what's seen in the world. Even the world can love their friends. That's not hard. It's not hard to love your family. It's not hard to love people that you have things in common with. But to show love to those who hate you, to those who persecute you, to those who you may not even like, that's, that's different. And again, this proclaims the kingdom. It demonstrates the character of the king that he asks his people to give even to his enemies. If the Lord gives to his enemies, then what good things might he have in store for his children? What good thing will we withhold from them? Right? That's what's said to the world. What will the kingdom be like? when love so fully saturates the relationships of its citizens. As the world witnesses this kind of love, it encourages repentance. And as people repent of their sin, the worship of God is increased among the people of the earth. So again, if we love God, then we'll love the world so that He might receive more worship in His creation. This is the third way that love for God and love for the world is connected. If we love God, then we'll love the world because as we love the world, we expand the the kingdom of God. So, as we come to the end of this series and we examine these three spheres of relationships, what do we see? We see that love for the family is our most basic expression of love for God. It's the first love that we're called to. It's tied to our very purpose in creation. God has sovereignly placed us in our families and He has given us the responsibility to take care of our families first. In my relationship with God, I can only express either love for the church or for the world only after I have already taken care of my family. God has sovereignly placed them in my care, and they are my first responsibility. So we've seen this. That's the most basic expression of our love for God. Love for the church is the highest expression of our love for God. And by that, I don't mean it's the most difficult. Rather, I mean that love for the church is is the fullest or the most complete expression of love for God because the church is actually the closest thing to the image of God on the planet. And the members of the church are members of the same spiritual family as Jesus Christ. In fact, this, this may be hard to get your arms around, but while family is the first responsibility of love, the church is the first priority of love. Again, I don't mean that the church is more important in priority of your care. Your own family gets priority over your attention, your time, your resources, etc., all that before the church. Rather, I mean that fellow Christians should, in a sense, be more precious to you even than your own family. Of course, it's especially wonderful when your family members are Christians, but we have to remember with our unbelieving family members that Christ made it clear that He comes first, even before our families, and the way we love Him is by loving one another. 
We have to remember that in the church, we become part of a spiritual family wherein we actually share in common more with one another than even with our unbelieving family members. And we will enjoy a more permanent relationship with one another than even with our unbelieving family members. So, love for the family is the most basic expression of our love for God. Love for the church, though, is the highest. What about love for the world? What about love for the world? I'd say love for the world is the deepest expression of our love for God. It's the deepest expression. Love for the world is the most comprehensive comprehensive expression of love for God that there is because it's inclusive of all men who are made in God's image. And it is also the expression of love that requires the greatest cost to the giver. It is an expression of love that is often the hardest to do because there appears to be so little incentive for doing it. It is an expression of love that comes at the greatest sacrifice. It is an expression of love that at times is even returned with scorn or evil from its object. But in this way, it's also perhaps the most selfless expression of love that we can find in all the three spheres that we've discussed. In this sense, it's perhaps the most obvious expression of true love on this list. It's a love given with the least to gain in return. And in this, it demonstrates, perhaps more clearly than the rest, a genuine concern for the object of its love. It's typically easy to love our families. It's typically easy to love the church. And this is most especially true when our families belong to the church, when they believe, and when the church is functioning according to its design. It's not so easy to love the world. We have the most to lose in our love for the world because we have so little reason to expect to get anything in return for it. But in this sense, love for the world is the most godlike expression of love there is amongst all the types of love we've discussed. In other words, love for the family and love for the church are important because the character of God is evident in the object of our love, right? When we love our family, when we love the church, the character of God is evident in the object of our love. It's evident in who we love, our family, our church. The character of God is resident there. Love for the world, on the other hand, is important because the character of God becomes evident in the expression of our love. God's character with love for the world is, is expressed not in the object of our love, but in the expression of our love. So as a church, Cornerstone must strive to do all three because as we do this, we most completely fulfill our purpose as a church, which is to love God. It was five years ago this week that the membership of the church was officially established and we began observing the ordinances together. I can think of no better way to commemorate that event than with what we've done here over the past three weeks by reminding one another of the ultimate purpose of our existence as a church and of the mandate that Christ has given us in this union, which is to love. Let's close by praying that God would bless this church by causing us to walk in love and so fulfill the purpose to which He's called us. Let's pray.